Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Flag Taylor for another conversation in our European cinema series. Today we are going to be talking about After Image, the 2016 movie, the end to the career of the greatest European director at that time, Andrei Vaida. He was 90, and it's a reflection on what it means to be an artist and the plight of the artist in the modern era. It's a confrontation of art and education and politics, about tyranny and inner freedom, a movie about a kind of moral heroism in a strange case, in in the case of an artist. And it's also a movie about how not to be a victim even in terrible times, which is perhaps an even stranger grace note to add to such a work. This is, in short, the testament of Andrei Vaida, and at the American Cinema Foundation we have a long relationship with the Vaida family, and indeed award the Vaida Award in his name. This is only our second podcast on Andrei Vaida. Flag and I have talked about Katyn, his movie about the massacre of the Polish officer corps at the hands of Soviets in the 40s. Now we are talking about a seemingly apolitical movie, but a movie that raises in a way a higher question, the question of education, the question of the kinds of beings we want to be and what it means for a human being to have a soul. But first of all, of course, Flag, let me welcome you back to the podcast. It's wonderful to be talking again. How are you doing? Titus, I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to talk about After Image. Vida is a director I really admire and, and respect. I actually see, when you mentioned Katin, I see a kind of kinship between these two movies. Katin is, I could say, the near destruction of the Polish nation on a macro level. And here you kind of see the same operation on a micro level, you might say, showing this destruction at a very personal level up close with one individual. So Vida is clearly thinking about the 20th century and how to communicate the horrors of it to his audiences, but in different levels and in different ways at the end of his life, I think. That's a very good point. It was, in my case as well, Vaida who set me thinking about this question of national memory and the responsibility of poets, of artists, of movie makers for the national memory. And we've already talked, of course, about a couple of the movies of Agnieszka Holland, who started out as his protege. We've also talked about Paweł Pawlikowski, the most prestigious Polish director now. And so we seem to have got a series about Poland that we didn't quite intend. And at the same time, in our European cinema series, we've turned more than we would have thought to the question of art. We have recently talked about the new movie of Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who turned from the lives of others to Never Look Away, or in the German original Werk on Autor, a movie about painting again, and again about the question of beauty and tyranny. Vaida's attitude to this is quite different, but I think at the fundamental level, they're saying the same thing about the discovery of who one is and the education that we can achieve, for ourselves at least, through art. Now, in this case, the protagonist is Władysław Streminski, who was a very famous modernist painter in Poland, one of the founders of the Museum of Modern Art in Łódź, the city where the action of the movie takes place, an internationally reputed artist and a professor at the university, at the School of Fine Arts. So he's one man, his conflict with communist tyranny is the core of the story, but he also stood for something, for a kind of education and for a kind of a way of life as an artist that made him very famous. And indeed, that's exactly why he became a target of the communists who wanted to destroy destroy this man in order to destroy what he stood for. So you're right that this somehow connects with the destiny of Poland. And you could say that if Katyn shows communism wiping out the elite of the Polish nation, the officer class, this movie, After Image, shows the wiping out of Polish memory through propaganda. So maybe we should start by talking through the plot. Sure. Yeah, the film is pretty simple in its arc and plot. 
we first meet our main character, Straminski, in 1948. He is out in a beautiful scene in nature on the side of a hill and with his students, maybe 10 to 15 college-age Poles who are there to study art with him. And basically, the film follows his career from 1948 to 1952 until his death due to a kind of sickness. And it's really a simple plot in the sense that you see Straminski's kind of slow destruction at the hands of the communist regime. You know, first he's barred from teaching, then he's barred from having any interaction with the art world whatsoever when his... um, There's some sort of artistic association, you know, and he has a card and that's taken from him. Eventually he finds work, but eventually he's not allowed to work. And so it's the slow descent where he's prevented from doing something to survive. And so it's a crushing film in that sense. You you sort of are watching this man over the course of four years becoming increasingly unable to find work and find a means to support himself. There's no film, at least to my mind, that does as good a job as displaying the evil of communism in the simple failure at material well-being sense. It's just there's hunger and poverty and loneliness. It's widespread. And so it's a very visceral film in that way. I guess plot-wise, the only other things I would add is that the relationships that you see him navigating are very important, both with his daughter, whom we meet fairly early along, and then his relationships with his fellow students and how his slow destruction affects those relationships. Yeah, there's much about the story that depends on this crushing Stalinism that comes to Poland. And Streminski died in December of 1952, just a couple of months before Stalin and the beginning of a kind of de-Stalinization. But during that terrible time after World War II, throughout Eastern Europe and in other parts of the world, of course, tyranny in very brutal and also in very mundane ways destroyed everything that these people could do, as you're saying, down to can you get any kind of work, any kind of work at all? Is anybody allowed to hire you? Can you get any kind of food? And it is indeed a grim thing to see a man become a victim of such tyranny when at the same time he has a sort of inner greatness as a teacher and a love of sharing what he knows and what he does with all these young Poles just after the war. The World War II hasn't completely crushed Poland. There's still a young generation out there looking for an education, even though they have lived in these terrible conditions of the German occupations and war. And then they are crushed by communism. So that's really quite hard to bear. But of course, aside from the historical context, this is also such an interesting story because it's literally the story of how you get cancelled as an artist for being ideologically or politically incorrect. And so this will be of interest, I think, to people, especially in 2021, although it is a story about the late 40s and early 50s in Poland. And so we'll try and show what in this story gets to the fundamentals of the questions of education and art. Vaida starts with this juxtaposition, as you said, we're introduced to Streminski out in nature. He's rolling down a hill because he enjoys life and uh, he's there with his students. They are painting. Painting itself is a sort of work that comes out of wonder at the world we imitate on canvas in this case. But just being there is so pleasant that after they see their professor, the students also let loose for a second and you see them rolling down the hill and laughing foolishly because it is a very foolish and yet a very fun thing to do. And then in the second scene, we see Streminski on his apartment floor trying to paint when this terrible red light overcomes him. It turns out somebody is putting a Stalin poster on the side of the building. And he, with the same spontaneity he was rolling down the hill, he now uses one of his crutches to cut through the damned uh, Stalin poster so that he can get some light in. And in both cases, you see how determined he is and how spontaneously he acts. But at the same time, how could there be a greater juxtaposition between nature and the city? between our experience of the world and the political propaganda and ideology that he has to face here. It's not subtle, but it's also not didactic, and I think that defines the movie. Mm -hmm. It shows you what it wants to show you in bold strokes. It very much imitates the kind of painting it admires. It moves your focus from scene to scene. As Streminski himself says, we perceive the world around us from focus of attention to focus of attention. And without a great attempt at subtlety in the structure of the sequence, as you say, it's a very direct story of a man who has reached a kind of greatness 
who is afterwards being destroyed. We see him at his peak, and he keeps going down from there. But it does have these startling juxtapositions that turn out to elucidate so much, like what it means for art to be art. It means that your awareness of the world around you is not simply under political control. And in as much as before you put paint to canvas, you have to love what you see, you have to be interested in it in some way, be fascinated by it, it shows that there is something inside of you that cannot be controlled by ideology, that cannot be politically correct, that like it or not, you are yourself. There is something inside of you that cannot simply correspond to what is outside, which can be controlled as political speech is controlled. Good. Yeah, I was struck by those first two scenes as well, the juxtaposition of nature and the city. The first thing you see with the scene in nature, I think, is you're, I think you're immediately appreciative of how good a teacher he is and how decent a person. You know, he's clearly bringing these students out to the mountainside to encourage them to encounter nature directly and to have that hopefully, I, I would assume, be reflected in their efforts to become artists. But also just in the way that he looks at his students he looks at them with attention and speaks to them with seriousness, not, you know, not talking down to them, clearly not speaking, I don't think, to hear himself think. He's talking about serious things and trying to do it in a way that's intelligible to them. And then you see him alone in his flat, as you said, and trying to paint and then suddenly is unable to paint because the light coming in the window has been interrupted by this horribly large red poster of Stalin. One thing that struck me about his act, he takes his crutch. We should have mentioned Sherminsky is a crippled man. He's lost a leg. We later learned fighting in the First World War and part of an arm. So he's got one arm and one leg, so he moves around on crutches, which makes him rolling down the hill all the funnier, right? It's almost like he rolled down the hill because he knew that was the fastest way to get from point A to point B, so he doesn't stand on ceremony, right? But what struck me about the scene in the apartment, reflecting on it now, is that it's not at all done out of political anger. Clearly doesn't do it to make a political point. It's not a political act. This is clearly something that he does because he wants to paint, and he can't paint with this poster is up. And so, I don't know, if it was a window cleaner who had blocked his way, he would have poked his head out the window and told the guy to move or, or something. I think that's just important, that it's not at all premeditated, it's not at all political, it's just, look, you're interrupting my creative process, I'm going to cut this hole in this poster. Yeah, that's right. You see this again and again, how absorbed he is in his painting, how, of course, the world keeps interrupting that. If there is some such thing as a freedom to paint, it certainly doesn't exist in this political situation. Throughout the movie, in fact, we see him painting until he completes this one painting that he started. And we see it at different stages. And, and if we could have podcasts as long as the movies we talk about, we could get into that as well. But we must <laughs> leave this to our audience. But the destiny of that painting is to be put in storage, as with all his other works. We learn at the end that these modernist paintings, they'll be saved. Somebody has hidden them away somewhere. And so there may be a future for them, just like Vida gives us in uh, memory of Streminsky a chance for this kind of attitude to art to have a future. In the meantime, the situation is brutal. As soon as he tears that hole through the poster, the camera cuts and now we're out on the street where there's the propaganda that we had heard from inside the apartment previously. And a couple of policemen see the hole and are shocked because it might mean that they get punished for it. And so they go and quite brutally arrest this man and uh, we see him interrogated. As you said, Streminsky is a double amputee, a veteran of World War I, so a generation older than his students at that. As you said, he's very natural with them. The combination of authority and affection is the most beautiful part of the movie, every time you see him with his students. But of course, then there's an entirely different kind of conversation, which is the interrogation, which is the way the police and the authorities talk to him, and that's uh, exactly where we go next. The authorities know his reputation. The authorities expect certain things from him because of his preeminence among Polish artists. He should abandon his way of painting and become a socialist realist painter in the desired communist way. And all he can offer at this moment is to say that he is not against the authorities. He's not some kind of protester or revolutionary or anything, but he just has his different views. 
the detective, in fact, here is an intelligent, if very cruel man. He has done his homework. He knows who he's dealing with. And he quotes from Streminsky's old writings from the time when he was an idealist revolutionary in his 20s. And Streminsky admits that, yes, once he wanted a revolution against the elites, he thought that the elites had control of beauty in society, and that that was just undemocratic. His modernism in painting and his modernism in politics went together at that time during the Great War and afterwards. But he has since changed his views. He has become far lonelier, but at the same time, instead of writing manifestos, his solution is to be a teacher to have a direct personal relationship with other human beings, not to start a revolution in art or politics or anywhere else. Yeah, that's very good. I was struck when you were talking, too, about that initial encounter with the interrogator. You know, just the connection, you mentioned how it's relevant because of this question of people being canceled now for their views, right? I mean, it's also true that it raises the question of what kind of society is it that can allow for a diversity of viewpoints on things like the nature of art and how artists should relate to the public sphere and something that, especially in liberal regimes today, it's easy to take it for granted, right, that you're kind of able to think what you want about this or that book and this or that mode of painting. And all Straminsky is asking for is a kind of society that's depoliticized enough to allow for the diversity of viewpoints to emerge and be respected or even just simply left alone. And what he must well know, and I think he probably knew, but was maybe hoping that the regime's deeds might be better than their theories, was they could preserve some sort of agreement to disagree in the practical sphere, you know, even if the regime's theory says that would be impossible. And then I I think he realizes rather quickly that, oh, no, they're going to behave in practice in exactly the way that the theory would predict. So there really isn't going to be room for any accommodation. Yeah, and so you can tell this isn't just a routine police arrest, routine in the sense of a tyranny. It's something more fundamental. He's told you have arrived at the crossroads and you have to take one of two paths. And one of them is be what the regime wants you to be. And if you're not going to be politically correct, don't let's even talk about that. So you can tell at that moment what is going to happen. Like a painter, Vaida has given us those two initial scenes, and in there you see all of the character you need to know about Streminsky. Everything after that just develops something you have already seized at a glance. Why why is that? Maybe maybe ruminate on that for a minute, because that was something striking that we talked about even in the pre-show, as it were, before we started recording, that you really know enough about this man right off the bat to know that he will never be tempted to conform for one minute. And maybe it has something to do with what you were talking about, his natural authority, this combination of um, respect for his vocation and respect for his students. I don't know quite how to articulate it, but in a way that makes the movie both enticing, but also sometimes not dramatic enough because you're just, you're never, you're never worried that he's going to disappoint you. (laughs) He's this man who you just know will never compromise himself. I suppose the one exception would be near the end of the film when he takes the job at the workshop where they paint propaganda posters. But at that point, he really can't feed himself. So you, you know, sort of give him a pass for that. Yeah. Any any thoughts on this question of the extent to which he might have been tempted to compromise himself? I think no. He's just, he is who he is, and he's not someone you have to worry about. Yeah, you're right. In, in all important things, his character is fixed. He's an adult. The only question really is, how will he deal with the fact that his beliefs about education through the arts are going to be crushed? He's not simply a martyr for us to look at and see uh, we should be as courageous as he is, we should believe in education through art as he does. That's not Vida's point, I don't think. It's not a didactic movie, but as you say, it's defined by this fact that there's no great choice that he makes that the whole movie turns around. There's no character arc, as people say about Hollywood movies. It is far more like a painting, uh, like a portrait of Streminsky, maybe. What you see is what you get. You can dwell on it. You can spend an hour or indeed come every other week and look at that painting at the museum again until you feel it's in your bones, so to speak. It's so intimately close to you. But you're not going to be finding out some shocking new thing. There are no secrets here. There's no drama in that sense. And the conflict is clear from the third or fourth minute of the movie. And and the fact that it's so exceptional. You're not introduced to any other characters who take a similar path to him. 
In fact, just the opposite. He's surrounded and ground down by people's choices to conform, but also conform in the most minuscule ways where you're never appalled by their behavior. It's not like you're watching, you know, someone who manufactures a machine that's central to a Nazi death camp or something. It's just someone who tears up an employment card because their higher up boss told them to, even though they disagree with the decision, right? So he's exceptional but I guess exceptional in a predictable, respectable, admirable, but not striking way. And the people who surround him are unexceptional and not terribly heroic in a kind of predictable way, too. So it's a little (laughs) sort of a... Yeah, it's a lot like ordinary life. It's the sorts of things that you would be likely to encounter in any such situation. Right, right. Uh, Even leaving aside the terror and the murder of communism, people are getting canceled today, and I promise you they experience the exact same things. People who are your friends don't really want to talk to you anymore, or they won't help you. And it turns out that it's actually hard to get a job, and these sorts of things will happen to you. It's very ordinary. This is what life is like. And the question is, how are you going to deal with that? But you're right, what is so astonishing about this character is the strange combination of love of art and this sort of moral intransigence. He simply is not going to bend, and the moment you see him, you can tell that. It's hard to think of an artist as a martyr of communism. And it's not even clear whether this man is dying for the sake of art. He doesn't behave like a martyr at any point. Nor is it clear that his moral intransigence is entirely good. He's certainly not presented like a saint. He's a man with faults. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That intransigence is a fault. He provokes people. And you see throughout the movie that one reason nobody ever helps him is that he's so intransigent that it scares people. If only he were furtive. If only he were sheepish. If only he showed some uh, shame or guilt or weakness. Why does he have to be such a living statue all the time? Yeah. He's he's such a hero that it scares people and they just don't want to get involved in any way. Or perhaps his students. Yeah, or perhaps even more reflective in his refusal or disinclination to involve himself with the regime and its propaganda. So one could say about that first scene in, in the flat with the poster. Why not just pack it in for the day and hope that the propaganda poster comes down tomorrow? I'm, I'm sure he knows full well who Stalin is by this point. He's an adult. He's he's old. Find a way to not adapt yourself, but navigate the regime and its brutality in a responsible way that allows him to keep his students and be effective, right? And the second, I guess the second scene I would add to that concern would be when they hear after the university is taken over by the party, the cultural minister comes and gives a speech about what sort of art they're going to teach, you know, socialist realism and all the predictable, horrific nonsense And clearly, this new miniature of culture is not a cultured man. He clearly knows nothing about art. It's a political speech from beginning to end. But Straminsky stands up at the end, and he says he's going to ask a question. But instead of asking a question, he basically denounces the guy and denounces socialist realism in the most imprudent way possible. But watching the movie, it comes off exactly as the ripping of the poster did. Like, he just sort of does it, and it's sort of him authentically speaking from his heart what he thinks about art. It's sort of like, well, he could do nothing else. But I think my concern that you just suggested, too, maybe if he was a little more prudent, he might have tried to navigate his disagreement with the regime in a kind of responsible way that wouldn't have brought the destructiveness of the party down on himself, or at least not in such a direct and utterly predictable way. So I don't know. Your comments just made me think that maybe we should be more critical of him than we are. Well, to start with, prudence is no concern for this man. But of course, classically, prudence is the highest of the virtues. You know, he must pursue some kind of wisdom, some kind of vision of what it means to be human. But this guy would get just as easily cancelled in an American university as in this university in Poland. There is no tyranny in America, but in the university you can be destroyed tyrannically very easily. And there's no way he would escape precisely because of this intransigence. People would not be inclined to cut him some slack. They would not be able to think of, you know, maybe we can secret him away somewhere where the Wokies are not going to see him. And he doesn't go out of his way to get in anybody's face. It's just that if they're there, he's going to go through them if at all possible. Right, right. He always takes the shortest path. And he's played with this verve. He's a double amputee who goes around on crutches. And he's the most vigorous man on screen in any given scene almost. 
There's something to be said for this impulsive character, his unwillingness to be cautious. There's no ounce of cowardice of any kind in him. But it's also, of course, dangerous. And uh, as I said, you know, he wouldn't uh, do well in many other situations either. He would have to live in a situation where people want to manage things for him, protect him from society a little. But not in any other case, because he doesn't really give a damn. His moral concerns are very strictly limited to not getting other people in trouble. As his career is destroyed, as his work is destroyed, his reputation is destroyed, as he's starved to death, he is always concerned that his students won't get in trouble. He encourages them not to do reckless things. He's worried about what they might be doing. He's encouraging them forever not to treat him like a guru, not to try and come after him. Stay in school, get your degree, you'll need a job, you'll need a career, you have a life ahead of you. Don't be reckless. In short, everything that he practices, he tells these students not to practice. Mm -hmm. And he has enough authority and they have enough sense and caution to mostly obey what he says, not what he does. But that disjunction between how careful he is of them and how careless he is of himself is quite telling. It's very hard to explain how this could be. Surely he treats them this way out of affection. But also, he, he must believe that there are different kinds of people because he doesn't recommend his way of life to them. The movie doesn't insist on his faults, but they are portrayed starkly, as everything is in this movie. It is a view of Streminsky done in a way that goes together with the character of Streminsky. He's a very careful professor, but also very arrogant man officially against the regime that is tyrannic. He is presented as a naturally caring man, but also as a bad father who doesn't really care much for his girl because he's way more obsessed with painting than anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His last concern is not making sure his young teenage daughter will have a future. His major concern is to finish his theory of vision. It's not that he's a martyr to art, it's that he lives for art. And there's a great difference. Maybe it's not possible to be a martyr for art in the first place. And everything else comes second. And yeah. politically and morally, there's a lot to criticize there. You're not, I guess, I mean, I think I mostly agree, but... I was also struck by the extent to which, while he's clearly not the perfect father, his daughter, at least when the movie starts out, before his wife, who he doesn't live with, we've not given the reasons why, before she dies, the daughter lives with the mother. He doesn't dislike her, and when she does decide she wants to live with him, he doesn't say this is a bad idea. At least at the beginning, he always has enough money to give for things. So he's, on the one hand, he does seem completely generous and completely willing to care for her to the extent that she wants to be a part of his life. So it's not, I guess, the one cautionary note would be to say he doesn't come across to me as someone who is utterly rejecting his role as a father and rejecting her. But you're right, he, he clearly cares about his art, first and foremost. He's a good father to the extent that he doesn't require sacrifices of him. He's not in any way cruel, but he is callous. He is, to a certain extent, indifferent. Part of what makes him a good teacher and part of what makes him a good father is tied up with this other side of what makes him bad. His intransigence is not political. He's not a man on a mission. He doesn't have some kind of ideology. He's got art in his life. And that ultimately comes down to what he's trying to teach people, to not be tools of ideology, to not waste their lives repeating and believing and fearing the slogans that are worse than meaningless since they destroy your capacity to be a real human being. It's not merely something you can just mouth off and walk away. He thinks that what is uniquely human about you will be taken away from you for the sake of, you know, the socialist revolution. It's not obvious he has any particular thing against socialism, except what any decent person would have that. You shouldn't be starving people out of caprice and, and all these decent, ordinary sentiments. What he has is a disagreement about the, how human beings should live. It's, I don't think, an accident that we see him rolling around in nature in the first place. That's life for him. It's not going out on a holiday. Like Everybody takes holidays. I have seen some of nature myself. It's enjoyable. But that's life for him. It's not a holiday. He is at heart what you see in the movie, a solitary man. Mm -hmm. Looking at the world, wondering at things, painting it. That is first. Teaching is second. And society, maybe a distant third. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Maybe there's a kind of um, pessimism in him that I hadn't really considered, too, thinking about his relationship to the daughter, especially, but also with the students. What you were just saying struck me about the contrast between what he preaches and how he actually lives his life. There's a scene where the daughter is memorizing a speech for school, 
And I think it's a propaganda speech about communism or Stalin. I don't remember the particulars of it. And he just sits there and watches her. And you can see he's repulsed, but doesn't want to use it as a moment to kind of criticize his daughter. So given that scene and then what you were just talking about, the contrast between how he tells his students to do the best they can and don't do anything that would anyway jeopardize their ability to work or jeopardize their place at the university. It might be the case that he just thinks that this new rising generation, this new era, is going to make it more or less impossible to live decently. And he can make this choice, but he's kind of made a judgment that can't imagine how anyone else could do it, especially if you were a young person. So that might explain why he seems rather indifferent or callous to his daughter. At one point, he says right as she leaves, I think to himself, or I can't remember if there's someone in the room, she's going to have a really hard life. And so maybe he's just thinking to himself, the next 20 years, if you're a young person, you know, there's just not much you can do. Yeah, that's certainly true. He seems to be aware of how bad things are getting. For a man who is obsessed with art, he is not naive about society. In fact, the two are deeply connected. The more he despises and is despairing of any hope for society, the more obvious it is to him that art is what he can do. He doesn't think that these students or his daughter will have much by way of options. He's not asking them to commit what would be a great sacrifice when you're 18. Now, when you're in your 60s, it's not a great sacrifice. Terminsky has his life behind him. He wants to get his book finished, to have a theory of art, a theory of vision. You know, he doesn't have anything else left to do. He doesn't have that much to live for, and he understands this distinction between being old and being young. He's obviously not afraid of death, which is another one of these striking qualities you see in the man. He enjoys his life, but he doesn't fear death. And of course, the situation of a teenager is very, very different. There's no life to speak of, and character is as yet forming. But you're right that at best they can survive with some of their humanity intact through what is likely to be a nasty tyranny. Still, there's something startling in his callousness. I mean, if you're an American parent and you see your teenage kid saying America is white supremacy, George Washington is white supremacy, Lincoln was white supremacy, what are you going to do? Whistle? Just say, "Eh, it's going to be a hard life for them? Wouldn't any American parent say, I'm going to homeschool, I'm going to a private school, I'm going to pull my kid out of the district, I'm going to make a scandal, this is outrageous, this is not America? So personal moral intransigence coupled with, as you very well put it, fatalism, perhaps it's tied with the fact that there's no society really where this guy would do very well. Artists can only paint for their food. If people don't want to buy your stuff or they don't like your attitude... What are you going to do but starve? And this is what you see there, indeed, that if you're an artist, you depend on other people. You depend on society. That dependence is outlined in a very clear manner. The movie has no hysteria in it. It has almost no sentimentality. It's strangely manly. Again, it's done in the way that fits with Streminsky's character. That double amputation, it never stops him from doing anything, but it is a permanent reminder of the hopes he invested in politics and the war and everything he lost, and in a way of the character of human things. You might have to give an arm and a leg to be the artist you want to be. It's a shocking thing that I don't think anybody tells kids when they join up for an art school or go to star in a movie or whatever, but it might be fundamentally true. Artists are not self-reliant, and so his courage does have this fatalistic tinge to it. He can be kicked out of his university as he is for standing up for good principles of education. He can be thrown out of his artistic association, as you said, a communist union that governs your right to work. And then they take his food stamps, the only way to buy food at the communist Mm -hmm. uh, grocery store. And they take away his membership as an artist, so he eventually can't buy paints anymore. Doing what he is fit for. Everything about work and food can be taken away from him because he is absolutely dependent on society. He really is in a situation that is hopeless. And it's wonderfully clarifying, both about the situation of the artist and, in another way, about the relationship between courage and tyranny. Maybe people are at least okay with his destruction because they are afraid of his courage. Somebody this determined is going to cause trouble for others, too. Yeah, I was struck when you were just kind of listing the obstacles that are put in his path. Expulsion of him from the union, the woman tears up his union card. 
the another woman when he gets fired from working at the propaganda factory she tears up an employment card he doesn't have the card that would be required for him to purchase paints he doesn't have ration cards i think the movie really does a nice job of showing you what the solidarity of socialism really looks like you know hovel talks about this the way in which everyone bears some responsibility for the coercive apparatus in a socialist country because yes it's true that it's a hyper bureaucratized kind of regime but people have to actually enforce the policies and that's you sort of see the kind of shockingly easy way that the mechanisms of coercion are brought down upon this man by these small decisions made by these insignificant people I hope people watch this movie because it just it drives me crazy when people like Bernie Sanders are given a pass, people who are utterly naive about socialism and should know better what unity and solidarity looks like. Well, this is what it looks like. And it's just shocking in its indifference to this man's, you know, humanity just crushes him slowly and unbearably. Yeah, the description of society does fit with what you read in the great literature that came out of Europe, whether it's Urgenitsyn or Havel. Everybody ends up caught up in lies that end up destroying anybody who is not willing to repeat those lies. And so all of a sudden, something that seems as simple as just, you know, tell them what they want to hear and go on with life turns out to have this existential aspect because it turns out that if you don't want to say what these people want to hear, they're perfectly willing to starve you. And then it turns out that it's not just mouthing off. And be, yeah, I, I guess I would add, and being perfectly willing to starve you while thinking that they bear no responsibility for starving you, right? That's the kind of shocking aspect of it in every instance in the movie. Yeah, like, there's this great scene. One lady fires him and he says, like, I don't have food stamps anymore. And she says, well, I can't do anything about that. But is it true that you met Chagall, that you were artists yeah. with him? Yeah, yeah. I admire you personally. I don't know if you're going to be eating from now on. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that's that's a kind of amazing, amazingly weird mindset that people probably don't quite grasp about life under communism, that it could draw people into these amazingly coercive and I guess, yeah, evil things. But all the while being completely convinced that they were doing the best they could, they were doing nothing wrong, or even, I guess, to put it more starkly, that they really had no other option. Right. That they were doing the responsible thing. Yeah, and you see the power of that argument because, you know, you see this movie and it's like watching a train wreck about to happen. You know that this guy is going to be crushed by communism. Why won't he get out of the way? It's <laughs> That's a train. Right. That's Just right. get out of the way. But he can't. It's precisely because he believes that you should, first of all, have integrity, that you should be a man of your word. His odd artistic notions about vision really come down to can we describe authentically as human beings what we see, the world we live in? What is it about it that interests us? What is the character of those interests? What is going on inside of us? Can we tell the truth about who we are? And that turns out to have these strange political consequences that he draws out without a second thought, without even taking seriously what he's getting himself into. He's a man of a certain decency and a certain superior taste. He despises the vulgarity of the communist apparatchiks. It's not just that they're wrong, it's also that they're debased. You could get policy questions wrong or artistic questions wrong, but what gets him is how brutal they are to crush what makes us human, which is much of it tied up with not being given orders all the time, with having the opportunity to be skeptical about some of the things we hear, even some of the things we ourselves believe, to be aware, therefore, that there's something mysterious about who we are. But he's so attentive to that, that there's nothing left for him but to be crushed by communism. And in a way that just strengthens the regime. Because everybody can see this is what happens. You either cooperate with these tyrannical bastards or you end up dead in the streets like this dude. Yeah. What if somebody worries a lot more about the kid? What if somebody worries a lot more about the wife? They're not going to be able to do what this guy did. And so you see this radical juxtaposition. Mr. Minsky and Poland, and in a way between the man who strives for authenticity and society. Mm -hmm. This is seen in the clearest way in a tyranny that claims to speak on behalf of the people, but you're unlucky enough to be targeted by a woke mob. That's it. Goodbye. He's not the kind of man to make a public apology. So in a way, it points to our own problems and it points to a more general human problem that even I think a lot of people who might want to cancel this guy or somebody with his ideas might think this is the kind of man I would want educating my kids. Mm -hmm. 
is somebody who takes the problem of education and solve very, very seriously and has the necessary talents. And so in a certain strange way, he's the best that society has to offer to people so that they become fully human beings. They can make a good use of their freedom. On the other hand, he's got none of the moral flexibility and none of the prudence required. Yeah, he. Um, I was just thinking that he he's a specimen of just someone you increasingly do not encounter in universities as much as you used to, at least in America, sort of the oddball professor. I mean, you used to have these people who just had strange ways of teaching and had a bizarre mixture of interests, right? And now with the kind of hyper-specialization hyper-bureaucratization in terms of what sorts of journals you're expected to publish in, right? You just don't get strange people with weird pedagogical techniques of rolling down the sides of mountains. And uh, and you can see that he's at ease doing that, but he's also so skilled at walking people through a Van Gogh landscape and kind of showing you the different parts of the composition and what Van Gogh had in mind how he might have intended to communicate this landscape. And so, yeah, I think you're right. This is all kind of bound up with his understanding about, you know, the importance of the personal encounter when an artist or just a human being more probably looks at an image and sees an image, that there's something very personal and not repeatable about it. Yet he wants the artist to be able to communicate that non-repeatability. And of course, that is totally at odds with the personal, is totally at odds with the communist ethic and the communist understanding of art and the purpose of art. It always has to be art that is in the service of the revolution, right, that has to portray the workers of the heroes and the bourgeois, the evil characters, and art without social utility is not even worth having. And so I think you're right that his very being, his very understanding of his vocation, ultimately, I think, is what prevents him from exercising any kind of prudence whatsoever. Yeah, so you see two strange extremes here with what is the purpose of art? Communism has a very simple answer to that, agitprop. It's supposed to give enthusiasm and anger to the people. It's supposed to make them believe that communism must succeed and also to hate the people who get in the way of communism. Mm -hmm. It's not just morally simplistic, it's in a certain sense inhuman. It just doesn't require, but also doesn't admit greatness. Indeed, brutal mediocrity is absolutely required because it's the only thing we all have in common. I cannot draw like a great artist, but a great artist, if you break his legs or his hands, you know, then he'll do it like I do. Mm -hmm. And this is the work of communism, crushing greatness and therefore also the hope of greatness. It's not just a problem that Streminsky is a better artist than all these communist artists. The problem is that young students love him. He has a European reputation. Well, the problem with that is that that's not communism. That's Streminsky. And it encourages in other people not communism, not submission to the state, but an aspiration that maybe they can touch that greatness. Maybe they do have a smidgen of it. That points to a different view of art than this thing that we see now with uh, woke ideology. What is the work of art supposed to do? The work of art under woke ideology is supposed to show you that the history of the world is the history of oppression and that the oppressed people are both saints and victims and also necessary, ultimately triumphant, and everybody else is evil. It's exactly the same understanding of the purpose of art and as determined to destroy both greatness in the artist and the yearning for greatness that is natural to all of us. Mm -hmm. Artists live off the rest of us in a certain way. But primarily, it's not that we have to pay money for the art they make. Like, you gotta go buy the Vida movie. They live off of us because if we don't care, if we don't believe that something great about human being and the world is on display there, this wouldn't even be happening in the first place. Our notion that the arts might inspire us. This is why we call these things inspiring, musical, somehow tied to the muses. If we still have that in us, then communism can't really win, so communism has to destroy it. What the other vision of art is, is doubtful, because here there really is quite a disagreement. Political philosophers and painters and all sorts of other thinkers who write on taste or arts have very different opinions about how these things should be done and what they mean and what their status is. Is a painting of a cat better than a cat? It might sound like a stupid question, but it's of fundamental importance. Is the painting, because it's a human making, uh, part of our creativity, is that better than the natural being itself? And you can just ask people, you know, people on the street really, and you'll find that there's actually quite some disagreement on this and that a lot of people are also sort of confused. There's a reason the arts used to be called imitative, 
they were imitations of whatever it is that you see. Now the arts are called creative, and everybody is obsessed about creativity. Now they may both be opposed to communism, but otherwise they don't really have much in common. When it comes to his art, a lot of what uh, you see about these modernist artists and their great reputation is, you know, quite childish. And, of course, part of the problem with modernist art did not come from tyranny. Part of the problem with modernist arts comes from the vast majority of mankind who think it's stupid. There you see a correlative of that imprudence which we have already mentioned. These are artists who not only are vulnerable to tyranny, but artists who don't really give much of a damn about their relationship to society and therefore are fundamentally vulnerable. Yeah. This isn't like Shakespeare, who was incredibly popular and everybody paid that little measly entrance ticket to go to the outdoor summer theater to see what this new play is. That was not just great business, it was prudence. A very popular man is much harder to attack. But you can't defend the art of Streminsky. You can defend his character and his work as a teacher. But his art is pretty silly. Yeah, maybe, I mean, you could say, ultimately, the problem with socialist realism and communist or socialist-inspired art is that it's coercive. It bludgeons people. It doesn't invite them into the art to reflect on it in a way that respects them as persons or respects their ability to appreciate what they're seeing. But in a way, kind of the hyper-modernist art doesn't, it's not coercive, it may be not coercive, but it also doesn't respect the person encountering it enough to invite them in in a kind of responsible way. It advertises its kind of indifference to the audience in certain ways. Maybe you see this in the scene where the school children are being walked through the gallery and the woman is kind of giving a speech about what the modernist art, what Stravinsky and his wife's art is supposed to mean. And the students are there and they're all listening. But with the exception of his daughter, none of them are gazing at the art with any genuine interest. And then that you can sort of pair that scene with another scene when they decide to liquidate the gallery And there's only one woman who's angry. She's in there and she's kind of interested in it. She seems genuinely sad that this installation is being removed. But other than that one woman, right, is there going to be a kind of mass public outcry because the art is gone? You know, probably, probably not. Yeah, there's a problem with a kind of art that is proud of its unpopularity or indifferent to it. Not just because the artist would be so vulnerable, but because their relationship to society also endangers society. Yeah. And if the elites should turn tyrannical, what are you going to do? You are out of luck. In his youth, Streminsky was a political revolutionary and an artistic revolutionary. He thought that they would go together. A new mankind, a transformation in our loves as much as a transformation in our duties. And we would all be together in a utopia. And he learned the hard way that that just doesn't work. And so he thought up a second project to educate humanity that does not involve bloodshed, that no longer forces people to accept the inevitable revolution. But this other project also fails because it is simply apart from society. It is not coercive, but it is radically and permanently unpopular. Whatever modern art attempted as art rather than as politics has also failed. It's ended up be as decoration, which Streminsky tells us, like, this is not, art is not decoration, art is a discovery. Mm-hmm. Well, look around, it has failed. And so there is something fundamentally wrong with the understanding of society, and perhaps with the understanding of art, which is an even more complicated question. So the more you shift for Streminsky as a person or teacher to Streminsky as an artist, the harder it is to defend that thinking. It's not that he's a bad person, it's that he's wrong. In a way, modernist art has survived in museums, but it has become a kind of elite-imposed tyranny when some asshole makes a horribly ugly building and everybody now has to stare at it whenever they pass by. People don't ask for that, they don't like it, right. but people don't get involved. Yeah, the, I mean, maybe the it's, it might be worth mentioning the contrast here with Never Look Away, where the main character, the main artist in that film, searches for and finally does find a different gear, you might say, or different mode for his art that he thinks allows him to exercise a genuine respect for his audience and invite them in, in a way, whereas Straminsky... Maybe he's searching for it. I mean, Parmi wants to give him more credit maybe than you do, because I think at some level, the way that he teaches and what he says about the art, especially in that Van Gogh lecture and some of the other things, he's sort of better than his art. 
maybe if he had lived longer, he might have searched for a different mode. But, you know, clearly in Never Look Away, the guy understands the limitations of what he sees in the avant-garde school that he ends up in. in, um, Is it Dusseldorf, I think? Um, Yeah. Well, even that notion, right, of avant-garde, of being ahead of most. You're not ahead of everybody, you're away from everybody. (laughs) Right. (laughs) A proper look at the movie also, of course, must involve that. Was he right about the question of art? He's certainly right that artistic education is much more important than we give it credit for. And we live in a world where there's no tyranny. But tyranny is not the only way to destroy art. We can do it too. Indeed, there are a couple of conversations between this painter and his poet friend Ah, who has decided to obey the regime and who is therefore safe and prosperous, but debases himself morally. In a funny way, it makes sense that a poet would debase himself when a painter wouldn't. What does what does he? The painter lives by his eyes, whereas the poet plays with words. What what does he do to debase himself, the poet? Well, in the beginning, the poet tries to help Streminsky keep his job at the university, talk up his reputation, say that he's unassailable. Maybe the party will leave him alone, and eventually, he you know he just brings him coffee. He helps him in that way. But the poet is involved in the destruction of the galleries. The party has ordered it, and he will supervise it, and so on with everything else. Oh, I didn't remember that he was involved in that. Okay. The party threatens him almost as clearly as Streminsky, but he simply obeys. And indeed, there is a scene of temptation. After much misery, the interrogator comes back into Streminsky's life to offer him everything he wants. He can have back his school teaching position. He can have money and things for his daughter. He can have everything he wants for painting, for writing. He will have prestige. He will have galleries to show his work. Everything that the party has taken away, the party can give back. Because his integrity in being humiliated doesn't matter. But the stuff he had taken away from him, he can get back and more. He says no. He just walks away. The interrogator tells him, I have all this to offer you. What do you have to offer And the guy says, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. He's not interested in all these things that, of course, so many artists are interested in. And it's not unreasonable. It's just that it comes at the price that is humiliating. The poet mentions in an interesting line, and I don't know if this is actually a quote from Miwosh, but he mentions, I'm just writing from my drawer now. I'm not writing for an audience. And he says that Miwosh either told him or says in an essay or something, he didn't specify which it was, that two things are destructive for an artist either writing for the drawer, right, writing for no audience, or writing for a huge audience, writing for everyone. And I just was thinking about that. I guess the one temptation would be turning into um, someone who's only concerned with applause and your art turns into what's popular, a kind of debased propaganda. But if you, the other extreme, if you don't have any audience in mind, you can become probably too self-indulgent, you know, not concerned with people, how they might judge, judge your work. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting conversation between the poet and Straminsky near the end. Yeah, he says, artists can be killed two ways. One of them is not to talk about them at all. The other one is to talk about them too much. Under tyranny, you can be silenced. You cannot be an artist by yourself. You have to have an audience. But you can also destroy art this other way by talking about it too much, which is what we are doing. We have a democratic commitment to creativity that has succeeded in killing creativity. We have uh, almost no artists to speak of, and that has been done by this terrible habit of speaking about creativity all the time, everywhere, always. We're not living through some kind of renaissance because of this creativity. The question of education is somehow much more important than it might seem. The extent to which the movie abstracts from politics, from regime questions, well, makes it superior because it points to this question of the human soul. Why is education so important to us and why is art so important in education? There's a scene in his education of his students, even after he gets fired, he, they meet at his house in private seminars and he explains, he says, look, this is my daughter's drawing. She was six. You see how kids are? They do contour drawings. They look at things in a different way. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say they just draw things this way because they suck at the drawing. (laughs) Right. He says, but think of who they are, how they're developing. It's a very modern insight. That stage of development has a certain integrity to itself. This is what it's like to be a kid. If you take seriously, if you in a way, as you said, respect who the student is or indeed who the kid is. This is how they see the world, not just how they paint. It teaches you something important about being human. 
you could go further with that and say that everybody knows children are imitative. Everybody knows children love this thing or that thing, movies, cartoons, all sorts of colorful things, all sorts of artistic things. That somehow says a lot about who they are. Kids are somehow defined by their love of a song and dance, let's say. That's fundamental to education, but it's not taken seriously. The communists, of course, took it seriously in a certain sense, that is to say, through brutality. The artistic education for the girl of this Streminsky is you're going to be in the parade and march along with the other tens of thousands of kids for the honor of Stalin and the success of communism. Mm -hmm. And she, as you said, has to rehearse her poems and speeches and all this propaganda stuff. And her father is just sort of dying inside. (laughs) (laughs) And she's kind of proud. One day she comes and says, look, they gave me a uniform to wear in the parade. Yeah, they'll take it away later. I look pretty. And she's a girl and she wants to look pretty. And all that banner, it's a pride of place, like getting an A in Polish as she comes and tells him another time. We don't take that seriously. Mm -hmm. We screw up, but in a very different way. We don't screw up by tyrannizing people. We screw up by debasing kids, by not ever uh, suggesting to them that maybe if you love music, the arts, that's important. That says something about what it means to be human that our greatest artistic achievements belong to great artists and also concern themselves with what is great in being human, both in what the art is about and in the artist doing it. Human greatness is in question there and that somehow this is a deep concern for all of us, which is why we love beautiful things in the first place. The communists too. If they didn't fear what happens in the soul of a child, they wouldn't have obsessed over propaganda for children. Right. When you see, I guess you see that too, not only in... um... Just the contrast between him as a teacher who has this kind of magnetic authority. But one thing we haven't talked about, of course, is the young female student, Hannah, who falls in love with him. I mean, on the one hand, you say, how, how can this woman, probably, what, 22 or something, fall in love with, I don't know, I assume Straminsky is probably in his late 50s. How can she fall in love with this on the verge of senior citizen, you know, lame artist? Well, it's it's because he takes seriously this question of the world and what in it is beautiful and why people who encounter the world in a certain way and reproduce it, why those things are beautiful. And, you know, she's just overwhelmed by it and wants to submit herself to him and to his artistic project. She's a great actress, by the way. She's the way she carries herself and the way she looks at him. That was just a very affecting part of the movie. Yeah, it's another revelation of the character of Streminsky. He has this inner desire to share greatness with people and at the same time, a lack of self-importance. The only really great joke in the movie is when this girl finally declares her love for him. She wants to move in with him. And he says, and I thought it couldn't possibly get worse. He shows you both sides of his character. On the one hand, he has this moral integrity. He's not going to be seducing girls. In a way, she's a child compared to him. As you say, he's kicking 60. But in another way, it shows his callousness. You know, he's worried about the fact that his life is falling apart. He doesn't need some girl drama. It was, <laughs> it, it was not, we should, we should say it was not a funny joke to her at that moment. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose most girls at 20 will go through heartbreak. So what are you going to do? He could have, uh, yeah, he he's he, he could have let her down a little easily. He sort of treats her as, he, he, he treated her in that moment the way he treats the uh, party officials he has to deal with. That was, as much as he cares about her, yeah, he, he was not, he was not very kind in that moment. Yeah, he's an asshole, granted, but he's a man whose life has been torn apart. So I think he gets a pass for not being kind to this childish girl whose love is, you know, very silly and selfish. You know, she thinks that she's going to save him in some way when he's being martyred by the regime. It's not a welcome problem when you're starving and your wife died and your kid is being indoctrinated by the Communist Party. <laughs> I don't know. It better. It's better than nothing. <laughs> Well, that too is a question. (laughs) You're right that this man is himself beautiful. And it has to do, I think, centrally with his teaching. How seriously he takes the questions of vision, perception, art, education. And then what it means to be a child, a teenager, a young adult. It's a true story. Straminsky is a real man. His wife was also a real artist. They were a very unhappy couple. And this girl came out of it that seems to be just like them, incredibly strong-willed. She seems to be running every time she sets about doing anything. And what you're left with is somehow his memory can survive with Vida's movie and with his art, which as the movie shows, survives. Do we know if she's still, is she still alive, the daughter? She might be, right? I do not know. She would be a very old woman. I was, th- I, I was thinking she might be 12 years uh, old when, you know, 1948. Yeah, it starts 15. there. Yeah. 
Exactly. So, but yeah, she might. Should be in her 80s yeah. now. It's not impossible. Yeah. Indeed, uh, we talked about Terence Malik's latest work. It's the wonderful story of a martyr, of Franz Jägerstetter. A Hidden Life, the movie is called. And his daughters, two of at least, were still alive, if very old women. Yeah. Malik had the chance to show them the movie. And another thing, Andrei Vaidal died in 2016 at 90. He would have known as a child and as a young man Streminsky, mm-hmm. the artist. Right. So there's a strange continuity, as you suggest. It's in our lives and in the people who live this story. It's a very real drama, and uh, it does give it an added pathos. It's not the modernist attitude, but the rest of us, we really care. If it's a true story, we just take it much harder and we believe in it more. Right. So this is the true story of Władysław Streminsky, and it's called After Image. Povidoki in the original Polish, and you can just go get it on Amazon. You can watch this movie and wonder at the virtue of Streminski and the virtue of Vaida. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great film. I I recommend it. Parts of it are tough to watch because it's so it's so powerful, but um, yeah, it definitely has its pretty unique virtues. I would say it's you know thematically a lot very similar to some of the other films we've talked about but for the reasons we've i think just suggested it does something pretty pretty unique yes indeed we seem to keep coming back to these questions about beauty freedom tyranny the problem of education you know streminsky is a humanist at heart he believes that you can educate other people because we all share the same concerns even if we disagree about how to deal with them Vaida is also a humanist. You will recognize the narrative, the characterization, the beautiful camera work, the sad piano. It's a beautiful movie, and indeed you might cry at some point. So (laughs) just know that. (laughs) But it too is a kind of humanism. It wants to save the memory of this man. And of course, it would be of especially importance to Poles and perhaps to those of us who lived through the misery or the aftermath of communism but also to everybody else concerned in this question of why is the soul so mysterious? Why are we in such difficulties to figure out what we are and how to live? So, Flag, thanks a lot for joining me. Always a wonderful opportunity to learn what we can from these masters and to share it with our audience in turn. So I think we are also doing our part. We try our best. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Exactly. All the best, Flag. See you later, Bye-bye.